The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Matthew chapter 15. Throughout human history, there have been two very different ways of relating to God. One leads to darkness, the other to light. One leads to death, another to life. One leads to hell, one leads to heaven. One is from below, one is from above. One deals primarily with the external, one deals primarily with the internal. One is based entirely on man's wisdom, while the other is based entirely on God's wisdom. One is human and one is divine. Throughout human history, mankind has sought to deal with God on one of two levels, either on their own terms, with their man-made traditions and their ways that they come up with to deal with God. That's one side. The other side, of course, is God's way. And these two approaches are entirely antithetical. They are not complementary whatsoever. They are very opposed to one another. When it comes to God's way, it has always been His way to deal with us on the internal, to deal with us on the inside, to, to transform us from the inside out, to bring His Word into the heart of His people through the Spirit of God, to tr- change them and transform them on the inside. God is not primarily interested in mere external rituals. He's not primarily interested in religious practices that are devoid of the heart that become routine and superficial. He's not interested in that. He wants our hearts. He wants your heart to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He desires people that approach Him with a heart that has been utterly transformed on the inside out. This is what Isaiah 66, 2 is alluding to when it says, To this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah tells us the kind of person that that God is interested in and captures the eye of God. It is the humble person, the contrite person, the one who trembles at his word. He's interested in the heart. And that's why frequently we see in Scripture that God rejects mere external formalism. Listen to 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, As the Lord is much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. God's interested in your heart not mere external performance. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is what God is interested in. But unregenerate man has no ability to change their hearts. And so the best unregenerate man can do in their approach to God is simply legalistic external rituals. 
that focus merely on the outside and do nothing for the inside. This is legalism. This is religion that is based entirely on the outside and doesn't do anything for the inside. This is the kind of religion that seeks God and and seeks to earn His favor through ceremonial rituals and religious practices. And the Scripture tells us that this kind of worship is always empty. It is always dead. It is always insincere. It is without integrity. It is hypocritical. And God is never honored by human efforts to try to get to Him and please Him and be rightly related to Him. Those are the two approaches. It's either man's way or it's God's way. And so what you have in this issue is essentially an issue of authority. Under whose authority will we live? Under whose authority will you live? Under whose authority are you presently living today? Are you living on your own terms, coming up with your own traditions and establishing your own parameters by which you're going to relate to God? Or will you bow the knee and come under His authority? Those are your only two options. There's nothing in between. It's either your way, man's traditions, or it's God's way. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning as we begin is, what are you more defined by? The traditions of men or the commandments of God? Who's your authority? On what will you base your life? On what will you hold others to? And by what standard will you live? There's only two options. As we come this morning to Matthew 15, we're going to see these two options laid out in living color. Portrayed before our very eyes in an interaction that Jesus has with the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this interaction, we're going to see a massive contrast between man's traditions, which lead to death, and God's commandments, which lead to life. You remember, of course, that Jesus has been challenging and confronting the Pharisees all along in his public ministry. He's been challenging them with their externalism and their formal religious ritualism. He's been confronting them, showing them the bankrupt system that they have embraced and are purporting to others. And, and, and we see it again here in this passage this morning. We see how worthless their system was. How empty and bankrupt it really was. And once again, Jesus is going to hold nothing back and he's going to confront them on their false religion, their false worship, and he's going to show them that it's merely ceremonial and does nothing for the heart. So let's read together Matthew 15, verses 1 to 9. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Two ways to relate to God. Either your way or God's way. And you can see this so clearly in this text. Notice how verse 4 begins. For God said, honor your father and mother. Then notice verse 5. But you say... Whoever says to his father and mother. You see the contrast? God has said this. God has established this. God has ordained this. God has commanded this. He has laid down a standard by which his people must live. And yet, verse 5, the Pharisees are doing something else. Their own traditions. Their own way. Their own approach. It's a tale of two systems. Either you're going to maintain the traditions of men or you're going to keep the commandments of God. And there's nothing in between. It's easy for us as we come to these passages on the Pharisees to look at them and say, how foolish could they have been? And yet I would submit to you that at times we can be Pharisaical in our approach to God as well. And at times, we can fall back on our own traditions and our own ways of approaching God rather than allowing His Word and His commandments to define how we are to relate to Him. And so this morning, I want to challenge us and ask you to think about by what standard are you living before this God? I just want to give you a couple points as we flesh this out. We'll just use a couple headings here as we go through this text and we'll hit them as we go. The first one, number one, is the traditions of men exposed. The traditions of men exposed. I want you to see in the first couple verses where the disciples, or essentially the Pharisees, reveal the fact that they are basing their life entirely on their own traditions. Notice verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Remember where we were in the last chapter. Remember that in chapter 14, Jesus has walked on the water. Peter has sort of walked on the water. And they got in a boat together and they traveled to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And there they stopped in the land of Gennesaret, verse 34 of chapter 14 says, where Jesus healed people and cared for them and ministered to them. It is there in that location that this scenario takes place. Then, in that very setting, after Jesus has come off the boat and he's been ministering to the sick in that land, he's there in that place when some Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem. This is the very first time Jesus encounters religious leaders from Jerusalem. He's encountered local Jewish leaders in Galilee, but this is the very first time that he encounters religious leaders 
from the holy city, from the capital city. Prior to this, all of his interactions have been in the north. Now, for the very first time, there is a delegation from the capital. From Jerusalem, they send a formal inquiry by the way of these scribes and Pharisees to come to confront Jesus. This is not a happy visit. And they're not there just to kind of happen to run into him. They have come for the express purpose of confronting Jesus. They've heard what he's been doing. They know he's been messing with their system and they're not happy about it. Let me just remind you of their system. One writer describes it this way. Their religion was intentionally external and superficial because it could be outwardly practiced with great zeal and diligence no matter what the condition of the heart or the soul. It was a religion of ceremony and tradition that the most hardened unbeliever could follow. It was concerned with covering up sin, not exposing and cleansing it, with appearing righteous and religious without being righteous and religious. That was their system. And all along throughout his public ministry, Jesus has been confronting and confronting and confronting and challenging this system, which is entirely bankrupt, which has no ability to deal with the issues of the human condition, and he has challenged them putting himself in the crosshairs of the Jewish leaders who are so angry that he has attacked their system, their livelihood, their reputations. And so they send an entourage, a delegation, to confront him. This doesn't happen very often, where Jewish leaders from Jerusalem travel into the north of Galilee. That just doesn't happen very often. It wasn't normal for people from that city to make their appearance in a remote area like Galilee. And yet they do this because they're increasingly angry at Christ. Notice verse 2. Look what they say to him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, maybe on first glance you're looking at that and say, are you serious? They made a whole trip up to Galilee to say, why aren't you washing your hands before you eat? Seems kind of foolish and silly, doesn't it? I mean, are they just concerned about germs? No. This was a massive issue. Because it was an issue of ceremonial purity. Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands as part of their religious observance. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, they were therefore ceremonially unclean. This was a massive issue. This was an attack on their entire system. And notice what they say. They level their charges at the disciples, but it's ultimately Christ that they're angry at. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. It's the disciples that they're angry at, but it's ultimately Christ who's in charge of his disciples, and so they're holding him accountable for the fact that the disciples don't wash their hands. Let me explain this just a little bit, because this doesn't compute in our 
culture. This is not something that we're familiar with, ceremonial uncleanliness. But in that culture, in that setting, it was very important. It was not germs that they were worried about. They were worried that Jesus' disciples were not participating in the ceremonial part of Judaism. And according to their traditions, they needed to wash their hands prior to a meal to cleanse themselves from all defilement. When you go throughout the day, you touch things, you interact with things, you then engage in things that might make you ceremonially unclean. And therefore, before every meal in the Jewish leader's tradition, you had to wash your hands. Now, where'd this come from? Where did this come from? This is important. Get this. It didn't come from Scripture. They had taken a principle in Scripture and they had extrapolated it to the people. Here's what I mean by that. The Old Testament required the priests to do this, but not the people. So let me read you a couple of texts. Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, and Aaron and his son shall wash their hands. Listen, who's it to? Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they will not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up and smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And it will be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Leviticus 22 Verses 4 to 7 says the same thing. It's for the descendants of Aaron. And they, in order to not be unclean, are to bathe in water before partaking of their duties in the tabernacle. It was a command given to the priests, not the people. But here's what the Jewish leaders had done. They had taken that requirement in the Old Testament for the Jewish priests and made it a requirement for everybody. They'd taken that law of priestly purity and made it applicable to every single Jew. In other words, listen carefully, they added to the requirements of the law. Now, how'd this come about? You might be interested. I found this somewhat fascinating. And and you need to get this because it's going to, implicate us as well. You you may remember that the Jews were in exile for 70 years in Babylon, and during that age, the scribes would look at the law, and they would study the law, and they would copy various books of Scripture, and they would write down, and they would make comments, and they would try to apply and interpret Scripture. This was a good thing. Initially, it started out well-intentioned. They looked at passages, and they tried to understand them and and give the implications of them, and particularly the passages that were unclear and obscure. They tried to give some light and some understanding to those things. And so I think initially, this practice was something that was beneficial. They truly did want to know the law and keep God's Word and practice it. And so they studied it with diligence, and they sought to bring out a lot of implications Applications and a lot of understanding, and they would write it all down. 
and they would write, and they would write, and they would write, and they would write. And so what you had over those intervening years between the Babylonian exile and the arrival of Christ is this developing body of truth, or not technically truth, Judaistic truth, a body of teaching that was developing alongside the Scriptures. You starting to see the problem? They were developing their own traditions. It wasn't Scripture. It was their understanding of Scripture, and it became part of their man-made traditions. It wasn't actually God's Word. It was their interpretations and the implications of God's Word that they were writing down, and this became part of their oral traditions that were passed down from generation to generation and was eventually written down about 200 years after Christ. But this is all happening here. It's taking place here and it's growing and it's developing. And there's this whole body of teaching that is now becoming something that sits alongside of Scripture. And they thought in their minds, that this is exactly what the divine law really meant. So they had the scripture, and then they had their understandings of it. They had the word, and then they had their interpretations of it. They had the truth, and then they had their explanations and their implications of all of that stuff. And all of this is building up together alongside of the actual commandments of God. And it was hard to figure out, and it was hard to know it all, and it was almost impossible to practice it. So look at verse 2, when he says, when they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's what they're referring to. They're not referring to Scripture, they're referring to their understanding of Scripture, which had come up alongside of the Word and had now become something that in their mind was at least equal to Scripture and in some cases actually was more authoritative than Scripture. Now are you starting to see the problem? They have a body of teaching that is developing right alongside of the Word that is now competing with, in their minds they didn't think it did, but in actuality that's what was taking place, a body of traditions that had been subsequently passed down through generations orally that had become at the same level of authority and in some cases actually more authoritative than the Word of God. Two problems with it. It went far beyond what God's Word said. It went far beyond Scripture. They took Scripture, they started with Scripture, and then they're extrapolating out of Scripture. They're making different traditions and laws and commandments and applications, and it's going far beyond what Scripture actually said. That's the first problem. And the second problem is it failed to do justice to the real requirements of that law, meaning it missed the heart. It was just a bunch of checklists, implications, traditions that they were expected to obey, but it never truly dealt with the heart. And so this is what's going on. They had taken a command that was intended for the priests, and they extrapolated it in their traditions to all the people. They had taken a command in Scripture and applied it beyond Scripture and insisted that their traditions were exactly what Scripture taught. And so that's why they're saying, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And by doing so, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. You see the problem? 
Scripture says this, they had to develop their own traditions, and their complaint is, why aren't they washing their hands? This is what they would have expected. Here's how one writer describes this. Water jars were kept ready to be used before every meal. And the minimum amount of water to be used was a quarter of a log, enough to fill one and a half eggshells. Now watch this. This is what you were supposed to do before every meal as a Jewish person in the tradition of the elders. The water was first to be poured on both hands, held with the fingers pointed upward. And it must run down. Ask yourself, are you doing this before every meal today? It must run down the arm as far as the wrist and drop off from the wrist, for the water has now become unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And if it ran down the fingers again, it would render them unclean. So the process was then repeated with the hands held in the downward direction, the fingers pointing down, and finally each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of the other. A strict Jew would do this before every meal and between every course in every meal. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that? That was their tradition. And by the way, it actually extended beyond the hands. Go to Mark 7. Let me show you something. Just turn a few pages to the right. Go to Mark chapter 7, the parallel account that Mark records for us. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Now notice this, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have Received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. What was the tradition? You wash your hands, you wash your cups, pitchers, and pots. Go back to Matthew 15. Jesus' disciples don't do any of that. None of it. And so the Jewish leaders come and confront him. They're not happy. This is a massive issue because it's subverting their entire system. And what Jesus is essentially doing is confronting them in the fact that they had added to the law of God. This wasn't Scripture, it was their traditions. They've added to it. They've given more than what the Scripture actually says. And in the process, they have actually lost the Word of God. They've lost the truth. It's become obscured and hidden behind the wall of tradition. And all of these man-made traditions made them blind to what the Word really said. By the way, If you know church history, this is what happened in the Dark Ages. From 400 to 1400 A.D., as the Roman Catholic Church did exactly the same thing. Started studying the Bible, but they developed their own traditions, their own regulations, their own dogma. For a thousand years, the church was in the Dark Ages. And all of that tradition obscured the true gospel, obscured the true truth, 
in the Word of God. And that's what made the Reformation so important. What took place 500-some years ago was monumental because it was a recovery of the Scriptures alone. The Reformation is what unlocked the, the truth from all of its obscure traditions that prevented it from truly being seen and known and lived. So this whole issue of developing traditions took place under the Pharisees. It took place under the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages. And I would suggest that sometimes we can be evangelical Pharisees. Sometimes we can do the same thing. We can develop our own traditions. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with traditions. If they help you Worship appropriately. But traditions for the sake of traditions. The scriptures use it as an end in themselves. And developing other traditions alongside of it always lead to problems in the church and in our personal life. Let me give you some thoughts on this. Sometimes we have a tendency to do this thing, in our, this thing as well in our own zeal to rightly interpret and apply God's Word. Sometimes those traditions become authoritative. Sometimes we actually erect certain traditions in the church and in our personal life where we think that they have the same authoritative value as Scripture itself does. And so let me give you a couple examples. In church, have you ever been around church enough to hear people say, we've always done it that way? Don't touch that. We've always done it that way. Programs that become sacred cows because we believe subconsciously that they have the same value as Scripture. No one would say that and no one would admit that, but there's a tendency at times for certain programs and traditions to become as if they are at the same par of Scripture itself. How about creeds and confessions? Helpful. Very helpful. But creeds and confessions are not on par with Scripture. And so we can get caught in this. We we can get more concerned that people might violate our man-made rules for the running of the church. How about personally? You ever met people who, in their zeal to eat right or follow certain medicinal practices and have convictions about that and trying to maybe apply some biblical principles, they've actually established those traditions as authoritative? How about parents who've adopted certain parenting philosophies who, in their mind, although they probably wanted to start right and do it right from the beginning and honor the Lord, have developed certain parenting philosophies that are almost on par with Scripture? This is the way to do it. I've known people who've embraced that. How about schooling options? Look at the principles in the Word and you see what the Word says about training your children and you take those principles and you apply them to education and and then you start to have convictions about how you're supposed to educate and school your children 
and you believe that in a sense that those become authoritative and anyone who's doing it outside of that is violating Scripture? This can happen. If we're not careful, those traditions quickly arise to level of Scripture and we might even forget what the Scripture actually says about what we're to do. So these are traditions exposed. That brings us to number two, the traditions of men condemned. The traditions of men condemned. Starting at verse three, Christ confronts this head on. Verse three, and he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? (laughs) Notice the question in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when when they eat bread. And immediately Jesus doesn't even address their question. And he fires back, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? (laughs) He's saying, you should talk. You're challenging us on breaking your traditions when you are violating Scripture itself? He turns the tables on them. He doesn't even deal with the hand-washing at all. And though they accuse him of breaking their tradition, he actually accuses them of breaking the Scriptures. Massive difference. So how are they breaking the law? He gives an example. Look at verse 4. For God said... Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. Notice again the contrast. God says in verse 4, fifth commandment, then verse 5, but you say, see what they're doing. They've taken a commandment and they've actually done away with it through their traditions. Say, so how have they done that? Well, notice, first of all, the commandment. Verse 4, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. You know, this is the fifth commandment. You are to honor your parents. You're to honor mom and dad. You're to express respect to them and appreciation to them. You are to honor father and mother. You are to do this in such a way that you show them love and care and respect You're to speak appropriately about them. That's what verse 4 indicates. You're not to speak evil against them. And in the context here, if they have financial needs, you're to help them if at all possible. In fact, the Old Testament made a provision for if you cursed your father and mother, you should be guilty of the death penalty. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, if you cursed parents, you could be put to death. Might have more respectful kids today if that was the case. Exodus 21, verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. By the way, can I just say as a side note, this is still in operation today. Ephesians 6, 2 repeats the command, honor your father and mother. This has not been abrogated by Christ's coming, death, and resurrection. You need to honor your parents. Do you do that? Even as an adult, do you honor your parents? Children, do you honor mom and dad? You give them the respect that they are due. That command is still in operation today. 
That's the word, that's the truth, that, that's scripture, that's the authoritative word of God given in a command, honor your father and your mother. But as we come to verses 5 and 6, we realize that the Pharisees and scribes had found a way to do away with that principle and do away with that commandment. They had come up with a, a way of violating that law in a very clever kind of fashion. They, they were telling people there was a way you can get around this. There's a way you can get around honoring your father and mother. And notice what he says, but you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. So he's not to honor his father or his mother. What's going on here? This is the tradition that developed. The scribes and the Pharisees said, if your parents are in need of financial help and they either ask you for that or you become aware of that, but you don't want to help them, you can say, well, everything I have has been given to the Lord. I've dedicated it all to Him. So I'm sorry, it's not available to you. That's called Corbin. Go over to Mark 7 very quickly. Let me show you just so you see that this is actually in Scripture. Go back to the text that we were looking back, looking at just a moment ago. Mark chapter 7, verse 11. But you say, same account, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban. That is to say, given to God. This was their tradition. If you, in your greed, didn't want to give to your parents something that you know would help them because you wanted to keep it for yourself, you could say, ah, Corbin, I can't give that to you. It's dedicated to the Lord. It sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Oh, I've sacrificed that, and I've given that to the Lord. It's dedicated to Him. It's going to be used in His service. I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. It was a way of sanctioning greed. Go back to Matthew 15. Listen to this described. The tradition was not designed to serve either God or the family, but the selfish interest of the person making the hypocritical vow. To avoid giving up his possession in order to support his parents, he could declare those possessions sacred and unusable, but as soon as he wanted to use them for himself, he could just easily reverse the vow. And the covert purpose of that tradition was to invalidate the Word of God by circumventing the fifth commandment. You see what they did? Their traditions had developed a way for them to actually break the law. And the scribes and the Pharisees were totally fine with it. In fact, notice again, look up at verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition, then come down to verse 6. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You see what they've done? They've taken traditions, they've elevated them to the authority of Scripture, and in many cases supplanting Scripture, and in this case, they have lived by their own authority and their own traditions. This shows their attitude toward the word itself. Not authoritative. It's not their standard. Their own selves and their own traditions were the standard. This is very interesting. 
They studied the scriptures fastidiously. They counted syllables. They counted words and even letters to make sure that they got it right. But in their study of scripture, they missed it. In their diligent study of the word of God to try to get it right, they had their head full of facts and other traditions, but their hearts were empty. I wonder sometimes if we let this happen. As Protestants, we're wary of rituals. And rightly so. We don't get into all of the formalism. We don't get into all of the high church stuff. That's just not part of who we are. We want to know the Lord and know His Word and study His Word. And so we're rightly wary of rituals. But I wonder sometimes if perhaps we might fall into this same trap of digging into the Word and yet doing it for the wrong purposes. Got to get my quiet time, so I check it off. Got to get through my Bible reading in a year, so I got to check it off. Regular reading rituals that just go through the motions and it's mechanical and heartless and lifeless and devoid of really gripping our hearts. Michael Reeves in his book, Evangelical Pharisees, says this. He says, quote, It is a temptation for us in just the same way as it was a temptation for the Pharisees. We can do away with the discomfort of having our hearts searched and our sins exposed if we treat our basic problem as ignorance and the solution as mere Bible knowledge. That way we can ignore the deep darkness and dirtiness within and focus on self-improvement through reading and study. It is a path that has all the look of Christian health and zeal, but without the pain of being undone as a sinner. This can happen. We just read the word superficially. We just study it in a shallow way to to fill our mind with some facts and, and maybe to check off a box so it feels good that we've done our religious duty for the day and yet instead of allowing his word to master us, it skips off a hard heart. Reeves goes on to say, when scripture is an end in itself, Preaching becomes a matter of making our people experts in Scripture. It may even make them more scrupulously moral, but it creates scribes, not disciples. It creates a people aware of their own biblical knowledge, but unaware of the depth of their problem. Puffed up and essentially self-reliant, they are not humbled, not dependent, not staggered at the mercy of God. They're not made worshipers and lovers of Christ. You see the danger? We can read Scripture and approach Scripture as an end in itself. 
as something where we say, I've done that, it's a religious practice, I've done my duty for the day, and yet the Word of God is not penetrating our hearts. It's not convicting, it's not challenging, it's not comforting, it's not doing the work that it needs to do in sanctifying us and growing us and making us more like Christ. I think it's important we think about this, especially here at our church, as you know we love the Word here. You know that we hold it very highly, and you know that we're a teaching church, and we're a training church, and we're an equipping church, and we have classes and men's training and women's training and theology class and a seminary. We have all of that, and yet in the midst of all of that, we could make it cerebral. That is the danger. It could become just academic. It could just become facts and knowledge. We can become pharisaical in our approach to the scriptures, and we don't want that. We don't want to be like them. We don't want to communicate that godliness comes from knowledge alone. It's not merely meant to give you information. It's meant to transform you. So can I ask you this morning, does your reading of scripture drive you to Christ? Does your reading of Scripture drive you to conviction, confession, mortification of sin, holiness, godliness? Does it drive you to prayer? Does it make you know the Lord and love the Lord even more? Or has your approach to Scripture become pharisaical and cold and lifeless and mechanical and legalistic? This is the danger of legalism in the Christian life. It makes your heart hard instead of soft. So where are you this morning? As it relates to the scriptures, is your heart tender to them, submissive to them, obedient to them, Or have you just essentially erected your own traditions, checking off your boxes, going through the routine, essentially no different than the Pharisees? Look how Jesus concludes this. Verse 7, you hypocrites. You know what hypocrisy is? It's wearing a mask. It's being two-faced. Living somewhere and somehow in public in a different way in private. A hypocrite, the word comes from hypocrites, which refers to an actor, someone who is playing a part on a stage, someone who looked one way but was not that way in reality. This is what hypocrites do. They try to disguise their true identity. In the case of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were approval junkies, wanting applause, wanting affirmation, wanting people to affirm them, appearing outwardly righteous. They were the hypocrites of hypocrites. And the reality of who they were was hidden beneath a mask of righteousness, unrighteousness. 
Can I just say there's nothing more insulting to God than to profess him with your lips and deny him with your life? And this is exactly what Jesus does, quoting Isaiah 29, 13. Look at verse 8. Verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What an indictment. Jesus goes right for their hearts. He says, you look a certain way on the outside, but that's not who you are on the inside. You care more about your outward performance than the inward reality. You care more about superficial, external matters, and you're blind to the weightier issues of your heart. Michael Reeves again says, outwardly they had no other gods before the Lord, but inwardly they trusted in themselves. Outwardly they kept the Sabbath, inwardly they did not rest on the Lord. Outwardly they were innocent of crimes against their neighbors, but inwardly they treated those not of their sect with a merciless lack of love. Their external behavior made them seem impressively righteous, but in their hearts they were outright and thoroughly transgressors of the law. They neither loved the Lord their God with all their hearts, nor their neighbors as themselves, preferring the appearance over the substance of holiness. They camouflaged their sin instead of repenting of it. And look at how he indicts them. Look at these two verses. Verse 8, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me. They say the right things. It comes out of their mouth. I love the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. It's all the right language coming out of their mouth, but hearts that are far away. Verse nine, in vain do they worship me. This is empty worship. This is going through the motions. And verse 9, they're teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They put their confidence in man-made rules. What a damning charge. What a horrible accusation to be something on the outside that you are not on the inside. Is it possible this is you this morning? Going through the motions, just engaged in external rituals, doing the religious thing, but your heart is far away from Christ. If you were to do an inventory and assess your spiritual life recently, what, what would it show? Someone who's just engaged in religious practices, all externalism, all to look a certain way on the outside, all to fool your parents, all to impress your friends, all to make it look like you're doing something the right, the right way, when inside you know you're bankrupt and empty. Rituals without faith. 
working internally is worthless. So where are you at this morning? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, no amount of religious activity will solve your human problem. You need to come to Christ and cast yourself on His mercy and His grace and receive the forgiveness of your of sins so that your heart can be transformed. And if you're here today and you know Christ, I would ask you, are you cultivating a heart for Him? In the midst of all your religious practices and zeal and, and effort and activity, do you love Christ? So church, let's not miss Christ in all that we do in church, in all you do in your walk, may it not just be external formalism. And if that's not where your heart is, ask the Lord to change your heart, give you a heart that loves Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we need to hear these things because, Lord, if we're honest, we will acknowledge that too often we become pharisaical. And we assemble man-made rules and traditions in a way that we think will appease you. And I ask, Lord, that you help us not to be that way as a church. For those that are here that don't know you, Lord, arrest their hearts, regenerate their hearts, give them new hearts so that they can move from the external to the internal. And for those of us that do know you, Lord, help us not fall into this trap. Give us hearts for Christ. Give us love for holiness. Convict us of sin. And help us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.